Well, forgetfulness and carelessness can be both painful and costly. I was reminded of this recently when I read an article about a man by the name of Stephen Thomas, and Mr. Thomas had about 220 million dollars in Bitcoin, but there was one little problem. He forgot his password. And at the time in which the article was written, he had not only forgotten his password, but he had made eight incorrect guesses at that 14-character password. And here's the kicker. He only had two guesses left before he would be locked out and his fortune would be encrypted forever. I read about another man from Wales who carelessly threw out a hard drive in 2013. And after the fact, he realized there were literally hundreds of millions of dollars in Bitcoin on this hard drive. And last I heard, he was actively offering his local city council $70 million just to allow him to dig up the dump in hopes of finding and retrieving this hard drive. Now, I doubt if your forgetfulness and carelessness has ever costed you millions of dollars. But I'm willing to bet each and every one of us is much more forgetful and careless than we would like to admit. Sure, oftentimes when you forget something, it's pretty small, right? You forget to refeed the meter when you park downtown. Maybe you forget to cancel that subscription that you're never gonna pay for anyways and you accidentally get billed. Maybe you forget to respond to a text and you leave a friend on red, but all of us have forgotten these small things and it's just sort of a part of life. I'm willing to bet though, each and every one of us have not only forgotten small things, inconsequential matters, but every single one of us at one point in time or another have probably forgotten something huge as well. I'm talking about forgetting a relative's birthday party maybe forgetting an anniversary, uh, perhaps you've forgotten some major deadline for school or for work. Whatever it is, all of us have forgotten these things that are so big and so important in our lives that there's really no excuse for forgetting them. And all of us, I believe, have experienced the pain and the grief that accompanies forgetfulness and carelessness. So today, we're gonna be in Mark chapter six, beginning in verse 45. And we're gonna see how the disciples' carelessness and forgetfulness ended up costing them a great deal of peace and tranquility, causing a lot of unnecessary pain and grief. And they did not have to experience the pain that came with that forgetfulness. So I wanna invite you to turn your Bible at this time to Mark chapter six, and we're gonna begin in verses 45 and 46. Verse 45 says, immediately after, uh, excuse me, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. He dismissed the crowd and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on a mountain to pray. Now I have a question for you. For those of you that are here with us in the sanctuary at Latham, would love to see a show of hands. And for those of you that are joining us online, would love for you to interact in the chat at this time. How many of you, when you look at verse 45, have as your very first word, the word immediately. Can I see a show of hands? How many have the word immediately? If you don't have immediately, you probably have something like straightway or at once, or if you're reading out of the New Living Translation, it begins this way. In the NLT, it says immediately after this. Now, isn't this a strange way to start 
a story in the Bible, to start it with the phrase, immediately after this. I mean, doesn't that seem a little awkward and disorienting, kind of like we're falling right out of the gate? I mean, it's almost as if we flipped on a baseball game in the fifth inning, or maybe, just maybe, we snuck in with the smokers at intermission and we're picking up from act two of some play. But it feels odd. Why would we begin a story? Why would we have this passage in Scripture beginning with the words, immediately after this? Well, that phrase is there for a very important reason, and if it feels awkward, that's good. Oftentimes, when you're reading through the Bible, you'll come across kind of odd transitions that may sort of seem out of place to you. But hear me today, there are no wasted words or syllables in Scripture, and this is certainly no exception to that rule. Because you see, in verse 45, when it begins with the phrase, immediately after this, it is like a giant flashing sign letting us know, hey, before you go any further, you need to make sure you know what just happened. Because if you don't understand what has just taken place, then you're going to miss the entire point of the passage that we're in today. So we don't have time to go through all of Mark chapter 6, but I would encourage you to read through it maybe today or this week because it's a fascinating chapter. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to give a brief recap before we hop back into our passage today. Sound good? Well, here is what has just happened in the lives of the disciples. Jesus sent the disciples on a missionary journey. He sent them to preach the gospel, and they have just returned to Jesus, and they're sharing the amazing stories that came from this missionary journey. And as they're sharing with Jesus, Jesus says, hey, we need to all slip off. We kind of need to duck out and go to this desolate place so that we can get some rest, so that we can recharge our batteries, so that we can kind of get away from the crowds and you can recuperate from this missionary journey. So they go to this desolate place, and it's not long after they're there that the crowds find out this miracle worker, Jesus, is nearby. So literally thousands of people, the scriptures say 5,000 men, plus however many women and children there are, they all come to Jesus and the disciples in the wilderness. And Jesus, as was his custom, taught the, taught the disciples and taught the crowds. And he's teaching them for hours and hours and hours, and it's getting close to dinner time. And everybody is starting to get a little hangry. So Jesus turns to the disciples and says, hey, I want you to feed this crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children, to which the disciples probably were shocked, a little bit annoyed, and asked Jesus, how on earth is that supposed to happen? We have five loaves and two fish, and that's barely enough for us to kind of have a little snack here. Jesus says, no problem. Bring me the loaves. Bring me the fish. Jesus says a blessing and then miraculously distributes the bread and the fish to this huge multitude. And it says in Mark chapter 6, each person had their fill. You see, it wasn't just an appetizer or a snack. This is like Thanksgiving Day. The top button is unbuttoned, bloated, gassy, toothpick in the mouth, full. That's what the crowd was like. And the disciples were too. And right after this amazing miracle, Jesus gives two marching orders to the disciples. Number one, he says, I want you to collect the leftovers. Number two, I want you to hop into the boat and cross over the lake and I'll catch up with you later. So the 12 disciples go to collect the leftovers and lo and behold, catch this, there are 12 baskets of leftovers. And the way I sort of picture this as each disciple has one basket in their hand with the leftover bread and fish, proof positive of Christ's power and provision. 
As soon as they grab those leftovers, Jesus says, right now, I want you to hop into this boat, cross over the lake. I'll catch up with you later. Jesus hangs back to dismiss the crowds. Then he goes up on a mountain to pray. So that is our recap. That is the this that has just happened before our passage today. So now that we've done the recap, let's hop back into our passage beginning in verses 47 and 48. Verse 47 says, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, but Jesus was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So let's think about the chronology of this. It says around evening, Jesus sent the disciples with the leftovers into the boat. That would have been around 6 p.m., And it says, Jesus did not come to the disciples until the fourth watch of the night, which would have been somewhere between three and six in the morning. So pause for a moment and just think about that. Jesus tells the disciples around six o'clock, get in the boat, head to the other side of the lake. A storm immediately kicks up, but Jesus doesn't come to them at seven or 8 p.m. He doesn't come at nine or 10 Hey, he doesn't even come at 11 or midnight. Jesus doesn't come until a full 12 hours later to save them. Now, obviously, Jesus could have come the moment that the storm began, or Jesus could have stopped the storm without even being physically present. We do know in the Gospels there are accounts of Jesus working miracles and not even being physically present with those that are being healed. Or Jesus could have simply prevented the storm from happening altogether But no, Jesus allows this storm, sends the disciples in it, and he deliberately delays for hours and hours in order to test their faith. Let's pick up with verses 49 and 50. Verse 49 says, when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out. For they all saw him and they were terrified. But immediately, immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. When Jesus finally comes to the disciples after hours of fighting the storm in the boat, they're exhausted, they're panicked, they're sleep deprived. And when Jesus finally comes to them, they mistake him for a ghost and they cry out in terror. And notice Jesus doesn't shame them or fuss at them. No, Jesus nurturingly swoops in and reassures them, hey, it's me. I'm with you in this trial. I'm with you in this crisis. I'm with you in this storm. And he invites them to place their trust and their confidence in him. Verses 51 and 52 say, when Jesus got into the boat with the disciples, the wind ceased. And they, that is the disciples, catch this, were utterly astounded. Take note of that. We're going to come back to that phrase a little later. The disciples, after Jesus calms the storm, they're utterly astounded. Why were they utterly astounded? Verse 52 explains, for they did not understand about the what? What word do you have there? About the loaves, but rather their hearts were hardened. Here, Mark brings the story of Jesus calming the storm full circle to the miracle of Jesus providing 
the loaves and the fish to the multitude. He draws a straight line from the miracle of Jesus meeting their needs with the bread and the fish to Jesus coming in and meeting their needs in this new unprecedented trial in this storm. You see, not only did these miracles happen within 24 hours of each other, they are closely connected. These are not two separate episodes in a series. They're act one and act two of the same play, and they build on each other as we are starting to see in our passage. Think about it for a moment. Immediately after the miracle of the loaves, the disciples find themselves in this new, this new trial, this storm, this crisis. And when they feel threatened in this new crisis, when they feel scared in this new trial, they've totally forgotten about Christ's provision and power just earlier that day. And it's as if they are starting from square one with trusting Jesus. It's as if they are starting from scratch with trusting that I'm in a crisis, I'm scared, but Jesus is faithful. It's as if they've either forgotten or just kind of boneheadedly missed the entire point of the miracle of the loaves and the fish, and now they are totally unprepared for this new crisis, which is unresolved, in which they find themselves. About a year ago, ESPN released its most successful documentary ever. It released The Last Dance, following the life and career of Michael Jordan. And I think it's gone on to become the most in-demand documentary out there. I mean, this thing is wildly popular. And there are many different memorable scenes in The Last Dance with interviews with teammates and coaches and behind-the-scenes footage that kind of add to the folklore surrounding Michael Jordan. But there's one scene in particular that I was really struck by, and it came pretty early on in Michael Jordan's career. Within the first few years of Michael Jordan being in the NBA, Michael Jordan and his Chicago Bulls were playing the Cleveland Cavaliers in the playoffs. It was a best of five series, and the Bulls had two wins, and the Cavaliers had two wins, and whoever was going to win game five was going to advance, and the loser would go home. Well, Michael Jordan and the Bulls were down by one point with three seconds left in the game when, amazingly, the ball gets into the hands of Michael Jordan. He makes a shot in the closing seconds to win the game, and as you can imagine, the crowd went nuts. It's an amazing scene, one of my favorites in that documentary, but I hope you know that wasn't the only buzzer beater Michael Jordan ever had in his career. You see, throughout his career in the NBA, he became known for this. He won last-minute shots against the Atlanta Hawks, the Utah Jazz, the Detroit Pistons, my Charlotte Hornets. He did it to all these different teams again and again and again, and at a certain point, if you were watching and the Bulls were down, and Michael Jordan got the ball with seconds left, you weren't wondering how this story ends. You're like, I've seen this story before. He's going to make the shot. They're going to win the game. If you were a Bulls fan or an MJ fan, watching him in the closing seconds bring the ball up the court after he made that buzzer beater, were you swept up in the excitement of the win? Absolutely. Were you relieved that the Bulls won? If you're a Bulls fan, you bet. But were you surprised? Not at all. Because you see, Michael Jordan had won enough games in the closing seconds 
that we just sort of came to a point of expecting those heroics from Michael Jordan. That's just sort of what he does. He wins games in the closing seconds. And so whether you were a fan or not a fan, if he had the ball in his hands in the closing seconds, you were pretty confident and expectant that he was going to show up and deliver. Contrast that level of confidence with the disciples' lack of faith. Notice in verse 51, after Jesus shows up in the closing seconds, if you will, and makes the buzzer beater, after he calms the storm in verse 51, listen to the response here of the disciples. Verse 51, it doesn't say that the disciples were relieved. It doesn't say they were swept up in the excitement of it all or they were just ecstatic. No, it says they were utterly astounded. They were shocked. They were surprised. And when it says here that the disciples were utterly astounded, folks, that is not a compliment. That's a knock on the disciples because they should not have been surprised in the least. Remember, earlier in that same day, they had just seen Christ's power and provision in a different crisis. When they were in the middle of nowhere, people might have fainted walking back to their homes if they didn't have any sustenance. No problem, Christ steps up and he wins that game. Well, just a few hours later, there's a different trial. And perhaps because it's a little different than the trial of the loaves and the fish, or perhaps because they're forgetful, or whatever the case may be, here they are, starting from scratch with trusting Jesus, starting from square one. And therefore, when Christ shows up and wins the day, they're not grateful, they're shocked, they're surprised, they are utterly astounded. If you read through the Gospels, you'll notice oftentimes Christ has some very strong words for his disciples. You can sense how frustrated Jesus becomes with the disciples' slow progress in trusting him. They're so slow to trust Jesus. They're so slow to believe. They're so hard-headed and hard-hearted. And you can just sort of picture Jesus thinking to himself, how many times do I need to win the game in the closing seconds before you get how this works? How many different circumstances do I need to show up in and deliver you from or steady you through before you begin to trust me at least a little bit? How many different kinds of miracles do you need to see before you stop starting from scratch? I mean, Peter, Peter, come on, man. How is it? That storm lasted hours. How is it that you didn't take five seconds, look down in the boat at the leftovers of the loaves and the fish and think to yourself, Okay, he just provided for me a few hours ago. I have proof positive of this miracle. I see Christ's provision. I see his power. I'm gonna let that give me a shot in the arm to give me some confidence here and increase my faith. How is it possible, Peter, that you would think I would provide for you miraculously at one point in the day just to let you drown in the sea a few hours later? Or what about you, James? James, how did you not take five seconds to think about the fact that I'm the one who sent you into this storm? I'm the one that told you to get into the boat when I told you to get into the boat and where to go across the lake. Doesn't it stand to reason if I'm sending you that I will be with you and keep you? Well, it's easy to want to beat up on the disciples a little bit and to wonder how can they be so slow to believe. But the reality is, all of us 
are really just like them. We all tend to forget God's past faithfulness in our lives. We all tend to miss the point when he shows up in our lives. We all find ourselves way too often starting from scratch, starting at square one with each new trial. And listen, folks, we make these trials a lot harder than they need to be. So with the remainder of our time today, I wanna share with you three steps that I believe will help us stop starting from scratch. Three steps that I believe will help us be more prepared to trust Christ more over time and to be more confident, more unflappable as trials come in the future. Step one, expect trials. Now, I'm not a Debbie Downer type. I'm not just trying to be pessimistic here or bring bad news, so please do not shoot the messenger. But folks, listen, it's always better to face an ugly reality than it is to bury our heads in the sand. We should expect trials from birth to death at different points in our lives and different shapes, different sizes. Sometimes they're clustered together. Sometimes we have spans of time where there don't seem to be that many trials. But from birth to death, we should expect trials in life. Listen to what James says in James chapter 1, verse 2. In James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when, not if, but when you meet trials of various kinds. How about the apostle Peter here in 1 Peter 4? Verse 12, listen to what he says. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, catch this, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. Did you catch that? Don't be blindsided. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be scratching your head. We live in a fallen world. Trials will come. Or how about the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John Listen to the words of Jesus here in John 16, He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, but catch this, in the world you will have tribulation. James, Peter, Jesus, they're really all kind of saying the same thing here. They're saying we need to come to terms with reality and expect trials, expect crises to enter our lives from cradle to grave. Folks, God does not promise anybody, Christian or non-Christian, a wrinkle-free life. I hope you understand that. He does not promise anybody a wrinkle-free life, but he does promise those who follow him that he will be with them in any trial they encounter, and oftentimes, oftentimes, he will deliver from those trials. So we need to be mentally prepared and face the reality that trials are a part of this life. We need to expect trials. And if we just go that far, if we just do step one, that in and of itself will go a long way in helping us be prepared for the storms of life that will come. Step two, we need to create reminders create reminders. I can't tell you how many times I've looked at vacation photos that are like barely two or three years old, and I can't remember anything from those vacation photos. I mean, I'm looking at photos 
from two or three years back. They're not that long ago. And I can't recognize the people in the photos. I don't recognize the places. I don't remember eating that food. And it's really kind of funny because you spend all this time planning a vacation. You spend all this money budgeting for it and paying for it. And it feels really meaningful in the moment. It's not that I don't value it, but just something about when it gets in my rearview mirror, I kind of just start to forget about it. And I believe the reality is when it comes to remembering God's past faithfulness to us individually, we have that same poor memory. It's just gone weeks or months or years after it's happened. But one of the things I love about God is how reasonable and gracious he is. Oftentimes, he gives us helpful reminders. He does this in the Old Testament with holidays. Whenever God shows up in a major way, he often commands an annual celebration. So he leads the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt with signs and wonders, and he commands them each and every year to celebrate the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why? So they can remember God's power and provision in the past to better steady them for whatever unresolved crisis they're currently in. Another thing God does at times is he changes people's names. I mean, he changed Abram's name to Abraham, and Abraham literally means father of many nations. And just think about how funny that is. You're Abraham, and you're introducing yourself to people. What's your name? It's Abraham. Oh, cool, father of many nations. How many kids do you have? Zero, <laughs> one, two. But it was a promise that God was going to bless Abraham and his descendants, and he did that ultimately through sending Christ, God would change names of places or people as reminders of his goodness and his work in their lives. A third way God would do it would be through monuments. God oftentimes, after delivering his people, would command them to build a memorial. I think about Joshua, when he finally leads the Jewish people to the promised land, they have to cross the Jordan River and there's this body of water in the way God miraculously dries up the Jordan River, and then as they're passing through it, he commands them, folks, I want you to get 12 large stones and build a memorial. I want it to catch your eye. I want these to oftentimes be in high traffic places so that as you're going about your day-to-day -day life, you see them and they remind you of God's past faithfulness. He commanded memorials to be built. And it's interesting that here we are on Memorial Day weekend with both a holiday, and that holiday is called Memorial Day, where we remember those who paid the ultimate price for our freedom. But God gives these different helps to his people. He gives them holidays. He changes names. He tells them, build something that catches your eye in high traffic areas to remind you, because I know you're slow to remember, you're quick to forget. Build these memorials I wanna help you remember my past faithfulness so that, so that each time a new trial comes, you don't need to make it harder than it needs to be. Kind of cool uh, modern example of a memorial that I've seen is I had a seminary professor. He's in his 60s now, but he told me that he and his wife, when they were newlyweds, made a remember book. And it was basically a journal that they called a remember book. And what they would do with this is each time they encountered a significant trial, they would write down the date and the trial. Uh, I don't know how we're gonna pay this bill. We had a house fire. One of the kids was diagnosed with a serious disease. 
there's been a job loss. And they would write the date in their own handwriting, and they would record all their emotions, all their worst-case scenario fears. And then over the coming weeks and months, they would record how God showed up, either delivering them from that threat or being with them, steadying them, encouraging them, and reinforcing them so that they could endure it and get to the other side. And it became this really cool thing that fed on itself because as they got into their 30s and into their 40s and into their 50s, when they dealt with a new challenge, a new trial, a new crisis, they would go back to that book and go, well, man, God was faithful here, 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 and here. I'm willing to bet God's gonna be faithful with this current unresolved crisis as well. Listen, whether it's hanging artwork in your home, creating a family holiday, journaling, starting a remember book, whatever it is, I would encourage you to create some way to have reminders that you can go to in the future of God's past faithfulness. It's unbelievable how much peace of mind and tranquility can come if you simply keep a record of God's past faithfulness. Third and finally, the third step for us today is we need to gain insight. It's not enough to simply uh, expect trials and create reminders. At a certain point, we need to do what the disciples failed to do, which is gaining insight. And one of the most insightful people in all of Scripture is King David. But before David was a king, we have this amazing story that I'm so excited to share with you briefly as we are getting near the close here in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 33. This is David speaking to King Saul before David was king, and this little shepherd boy, David, is speaking to this mighty king, King Saul, about, hey, I want to go fight this Goliath guy that's terrifying everybody, and just focus on the insight that David possessed. Picking up in verse 33... It says, Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear, and it took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth, and if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant, catch this, your servant has struck down both lions in his past, bears in his past, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Verse 37 is such a beautiful summary of this truth, the insight that David possessed. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. While no two trials in your life will be exactly alike, God nevertheless expects us to remember his past faithfulness and to frame whatever unresolved crisis we may find ourselves in in light of his past faithfulness. You see, we tend to think with a new trial, if it's unprecedented, then we have to start from square one. But that is not what David did. To the best of our knowledge, David never killed a giant before. David never killed a man. He's young. He hasn't lived much life. But David looked back on the fact that God was with me with the bear. God was with me with the lion. God, at the end of the day, is the common denominator here. You know what? I believe God is going to be with me too in this current unresolved crisis. David had the understanding 
had the insight that the disciples should have had. In contrast, the disciples, although they just saw a miracle from the hands of Christ hours earlier, when they're dealing with this new crisis, this unprecedented trial of the storm, they're starting back from scratch. They're starting from square one. And I can only imagine Jesus must have said something to the disciples like this. Did you learn anything from the loaves and the fish? What did you learn from that? What was your takeaway? Was the takeaway that if we ever have a catering emergency in the future, Jesus has that covered? But I'm over my head when it comes to storms. Jesus must have thought to himself, how can the disciples be so slow to believe? How can they be so hard of heart? How can you not understand Peter, James, John, Nikki, Jeff, Rachel, Ilana, Matt? How can you not understand I allow these trials into your life not to try and prepare you should the exact same trial come again in the future. No, that'll never happen. I allow these trials so that you can look back on my past faithfulness and see that I was the common denominator. You don't have to make these trials as hard as you've been making them. They're hard enough on their own. Why do we wanna make them any harder? Why are we gonna keep starting from scratch? Folks, we don't have to start from scratch. We don't have to start from square one with trusting Jesus if you've been walking with him for any time at all. Grace Fellowship, I want you to know that when trials come, you do not have to keep starting from scratch. When trials come, you don't have to be overrun with fear. If we simply remember God's past faithfulness and just remember it and have insight we keep it top of mind. If we can just do that, we can be unflappable and prepared for whatever life may throw at us. Remember the loaves. Remember the fish. Have insight. Father, I thank you so much for the gift of your word, and I thank you that the disciples are so relatable because just like them, we are so quick to forget your past faithfulness. God, help us understand how this must grieve you, that we are so suspicious of you, that we are so slow to believe, that we are so slow to trust when you have been nothing but faithful. God, help us remember not only your power and provision as recorded in scripture, help us remember it in our own lives and experience so that we can grow and not be overcome with fear with each new trial, but rather, Lord, that we can have tranquility, peace, contentment, confidence, because at the end of the day, you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of peace and love and a sound mind. God, help us to stop starting from scratch. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.